Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... The message of spirit always is to give proof of the continuity of life, to remove the fear, and to be able to accept death as an illusion and death as a graduation, you see, into another dimension. That's a scene from the new documentary film, No One Dies in Lilydale. It's about Lilydale, New York, a town where many of the residents are spiritual mediums and where thousands of people go each year hoping to contact the deceased. The film introduces us to a number of the mediums, one of whom we just heard in that clip a moment ago, and it follows the stories of three visitors to Lilydale. All of them have recently lost loved ones, and all are grief-stricken. The film is uh, a really fascinating and often touching look at things like belief, love, and loss. And today I'm going to talk to the filmmaker and to several people depicted in the movie. First, director Stephen Cantor. He's the maker of numerous documentaries, with one Emmy Award, several more Emmy nominations, and one Academy Award nomination to his credit. And to note here, some listeners who know that this show has a scientific bent may be surprised that we're not going to spend much time today inquiring into the legitimacy of spiritualist beliefs. That's not the focus of the movie, and it's not the focus of our program. We're just going to let people tell their own stories. Now here's Stephen Cantor, director of No One Dies in Lilydale. Stephen, thanks for uh, joining us today. How um, did you first come upon this town of Lilydale in upstate New York? Um, after hearing about Lilydale from an agent named Alan Grafman, my partner, Daniel Lakin, and I decided to take a trip up there and just just see what it was about. You know, we, a town of psychics sounded really exciting to us. So we jumped on a plane to Buffalo and drove up there, very skeptical of what we were going to find there, not really expecting to be extremely moved or impressed with with psychic phenomena. And what we found was people being just reduced to tears instantly as they got their messages. And so just the fact that people were being so moved, going from completely composed to completely breaking down before our eyes was enough to convince us there was something there. And then we got some messages which were just a little too specific for our comfort. So oh. we ended up thinking there might really be something there, and we left feeling we needed to do something. Oh, tell me about this. You got some messages? Uh, explain what you mean. Well, on our initial research trip, we spoke to some psychics, and they told us some things that were happening in our future and some names of some deceased relatives. And just kind of a couple of the things were really hitting in very specific little corners of our lives. It seemed like there was something going on there that was worth exploring. <laughs> we're we're going to talk a little bit more about how the... Um how these readings go, and we'll play some clips from your film where, where these mediums offer sort of uh, insights or intuitions or messages, however you want to say it, to, to various people. So, so we'll get into that a little bit more. But, but you were, obviously, your curiosity was, was seriously piqued about these phenomena. Um, describe the town of Lilydale for us. Lilydale is a very kind of quaint little town. Um, you know, maybe a couple hundred houses, Everybody really knows everybody. There's maybe five streets, and most of the residents are psychics. Some of them are just members of the spiritualist church, but they're all, in order to even get through the gate, or in order to be able to build a house there, you need to be a member of the spiritualist church, which is a very small um, church up there. I see. So this is, this is a gated community, and everybody is part of this, this religion or church. Yeah, it's a gated community, and you're not allowed to 
have land there unless you're a member of the church. Uh-huh. And visually, inside the gates, it's 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 Victorian era. It's full of, um, as yeah, you say, feel like you, you drive it and you feel like a throwback to another era. They're not super technological. Most houses don't have televisions. Very quaint and old-fashioned. These are these are Victorian era uh, cottages. A lot of gingerbread um, uh, in the architecture. Tree-lined streets. Uh, you know, all of the trappings of, of uh, you know, maybe an era, maybe 150 years ago. Exactly. But it's not done in a contrived way where they're, you know, 10 years ago trying to build a Victorian town. It's, these houses are mostly 100 years old. Uh, and, and there are 40 registered mediums in this village. Correct. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting the medium. Nope. Everywhere you look, there's mediums. And then during the summer... The town is just pulsating with tourists, and the tourists are looking for readings. So the mediums are kind of the stars of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I said you can't swing a dead cat, but actually in the Church of Spiritualism, there's probably no such thing as a dead cat. That's true. And, and that's because, um, according to spiritualism, uh, nobody really dies. The, the spirit just moves on. Correct, which is actually an amazing way to organize your life, because it just takes the fear of death completely away. You just... They believe you're just this energy, and you come down and inhabit a body, and the body is basically a carapace for your spirit and your energy, and you are here to learn a lesson or experience something that you hadn't experienced before, and then when your body expires, you just go right back into spirit land. You called it the Church of Spiritualism. Um, They see it as a kind of um, bona fide religion? Yeah, for them it's a religion. It's very rooted in Catholicism, with the main exception being this belief in the spiritual realm. But uh, it, it, it's not so full of, of talk of, um, you know, traditional Christian theology, is it? I mean, um, it seemed to be mostly about something they just call spirit. Yes, that is really rooted in spirit. Rooted in spirit. And it dates back to the 19th century? Yep, it reached its peak, actually, in the from about the 1840s to the 1920s. Uh, but it was really developed in the early 1800s. There are two sisters called the Fox Sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox, who are credited with um, sort of getting it off the ground in America. Mm, mm. Uh, I think it was in 1848. Uh-huh. And then, you know, by the, the late 1800s and even the early 20th century, there was quite a fad. I mean, there were seances, all kinds of psychic readings. Um, you have a little section of the film where you, you show a bunch of old photographs. Um, they look to be do- heavily doctored photographs showing seances with, with various ghosts and things appearing, um, something they called ectoplasm. These things took place in darkened rooms, typically. There were mysterious thumpings, you know, from the beyond and, and stuff like that. Um, the interesting thing is they appear to be doctored photographs, but they're the photographs are 75 years old, so we're going back way before Photoshop or anything. Yeah, although, truthfully, uh, you, could, you could doctor photographs, and a lot of people did in that era. Uh, but 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 that that era, you know, there was a lot of theatrics involved, a lot of special effects, and uh, along came debunkers like none other than Harry Houdini, and um, exposed a lot of these guys as frauds. Yes. And the uh, the mediums you talk to in in your film, No One Dies in Lilydale, um, talk about the fact that yeah, there were fakes back then, and you have to be on the lookout for bogus psychics. Uh, but they see a, a big distinction between the real deal and the fakes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think actually still there's, they're on the lookout for, for fakes. So they have their own, their own licensing procedures, their own registration procedures. Yeah, the registration 
the registration experience is very rigorous and really know they have very strenuous testing. Uh-huh. Even still, even still, there's a feeling in the town that some people are much stronger mediums than others, not like they're all created equal or anything. There's almost like a hierarchy where they know which ones really have more of a gift and which ones don't. Uh-huh. Um, I thought I'd contrast that old um, you know, and very common idea of what these readings um, look like with, uh, again, darkened rooms and mysterious noises and uh, candlelight and all that with, with what seems to be happening in, in Lilydale. Um, we'll play a little clip from your film here. This is a, um, a medium named Gerda Lestock. Is that how it's pronounced? Yep. Okay, and she's talking to a, a woman client and giving her a reading. I'm hearing crush, crush. I'm having somebody. Uh, I, am, I am in a car accident. Um, who is in a car accident? Who, who did you lose through uh, impound? Um, I slid, I hit the tree. I think it's a tree or a pole or something. Who is that? My daughter. She's wiping your tears, okay? And she's asking you, please, don't cry anymore. I am happy. I'm not hurting. I was not hurting, okay? Mm-hmm. So we heard um, Gerda Lestock, this, this psychic, saying to a woman uh, that she's picking up messages about a car accident, and she seems to be on target because the woman says, yes, that's my daughter. Um, and then she tells her um, that her daughter's um, sending reassuring messages. And that seems to be the, the basic procedure. They start with, with some sort of um, intuitions that are surprising insights into what happened to, to some deceased relative or loved one. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that sort of establishes their credibility. And then they generally move to optimistic and positive things about the, the loved one, the deceased, you know, saying they're okay go on with your life, we're still here, we're, we're watching you, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the way it usually goes? Um, by and large, the messages are positive. I think the mediums could speak to that probably better than I could. Um, <clears throat> but by and large, the spirits do have positive messages. Sometimes they're more specific than others. Sometimes they feel a little sort of vague and self-helpy, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it, it feels uh, like therapy. Um, these are not darkened rooms. These are not, there are no special effects. These are people sitting in parlors or even on front porches just talking. And I should say the atmosphere of the film is not one that's full of foreboding and ominous, you know, occult feeling. It's, it's a very bright and, and almost cheerful film if it weren't for such sad stories that it's telling. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you said uh, earlier that you um, and your team got some messages that sort of impressed you. Did you come away after um, that experience and also uh, witnessing readings like this where the medium seems to to be picking up stuff that they shouldn't otherwise be able to, to, to guess at? Um, did you come away sort of believing? Um, you know, I've been asked that question a lot. And what, um, what I generally think is that imagine you're in the desert and you're really, really thirsty and somebody shows up with a cup of muddy water, you're still going to take that water and devour it. <laughs> and that's kind of the way, not that not that Lilydale is necessarily muddy, but I think people who go there 
many of the visitors are so thirsty, so dying for connection, or so sad in some way that they're just looking for something, and when they're given a, you know, a kernel of truth, they just explode and turn it into a mountain of mm-hmm. truth mm-hmm. and meaning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having said that, I, I think there is unquestionably some kernels of something going on there that, that are undeniable. I think most of the readings that I saw are, you know, somewhat accurate, somewhat not, according to the person receiving the reading. Like so a lot of stuff gets refuted, or a lot of times they say, well, just take that home with you and think about it. It might come to you in the future, which to me feels like a, a miss. But there are, you know, I've seen, I saw many, many instances of extraordinarily specific readings. One time, something that's not in the film, there was a woman who was trying to get in touch with a, her deceased father, and she hadn't been left anything in the will. And the medium said, well, the father wants you to have his nickel collection. And she said, my father never collected nickels. She said, yes, he has a nickel collection in his attic. And she said, no, no, no. My father never collected nickels. And he said, well, he's stressing to me nickels, nickels. I don't know what that could mean. She said, believe me, I knew my father. He did not collect coins. I don't know what you're talking about, but she went home and looked through the attic and looked through all this old stuff and found a book of old nickels. And sure enough, some of them were really valuable. <laughs> she she left feeling like it was a terrible reading and there was no nickel collection and it was a waste of her time. And she sent us. She felt like she had to send us an email to just let us know that she came upon this nickel collection. Things like that happened that just made me feel like there's definitely something going on there that's not explainable in uh, you know simplest scientific I, way I, of thinking. I should say that those folks who debunk mediums. Um, typically uh, describe a process where the medium makes educated guesses. I mean, they see a person of a certain age, and they can guess that the loved one was, say, a spouse or a parent or something like that. They can throw out a very common name and say, you know, is there a David in your life? And, of course, for 90-plus percent of the people, there's some David in their lives. You know what I mean? And, and, and then based on the kind of um, responses they get, they can sort of refine the the messages so so some people describe a kind of um, flimflam game. Uh, another way, I, to... I had a reading from Anne Gaiman where she's you know for about two weeks she kept telling me I really want to do a reading for you just let me know when you're available I really want to do a reading for you so on our on our last day of shooting and I went to see her and said okay I'm, I have an hour let's do it she sat down she said oh my god wow they're all coming in you have so many guardian angels and she started speaking to them she was like okay. Folks, I can't get everyone at once. You know, line up by, let's do ladies first. Okay, no, they want to come in couples. And then she started naming couples. She was like, okay, we have Harry and Sally. And that was my grandmother's parents. Right off the bat, she was two for two. And then she said, wow, and okay, now Grandpa Fred is coming through, and he wants you to know that he's your great-grandfather, and he's coming through holding a pocket watch. And sure enough, I had a grandpa, great-grandpa Fred who was always carrying a pocket watch, and we have pictures of him with a pocket watch. And then she was like, Hannah and Yettle and all these old Russian Jewish names. And I was kind of strangely writing down names. And I called my father after the reading and said, who are all these people? And I read the names and he said, get out of here. She Googled you or something. She found your family tree. It's impossible. Every single person she named was a, you know, a great grandparent or great uncle or close, you know, relative or something. And I know, I know for a fact there is no Googling or cheating going on. How do you know? No. How do you know? It's just not that kind of place. I mean, most of them are barely computer literate. 
they barely have running water. They don't make that much money. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be worth the effort. You mentioned money. Now, some people who um, would frown on all of this would say that they're, they're, um, you know, they're ripoff artists, that they're taking the money of uh, bereaved people. Um, how much money do they charge for a reading? Forty, fifty bucks. So it's forty, fifty bucks. It takes an hour. There's just no way they're spending the time to figure out who the person that they're reading for is, what their name is, mm-hmm. finding some website with family trees. I mean. Mm. Try you try and find my grandparents. <laughs> I've tried to find them. I can't find anything on my own family tree. I mean, I think you know they have no idea who's coming in. The person comes in, says their name, they make some connection. The person leaves, and they are out of sight, out of mind. The mediums don't think about them anymore. Uh-huh. They deliver the messages, and they're they're done. There's just not that much effort. Some of them would do like six or eight a day. They just they're not taking the time to cheat. I know for sure there's no cheating going on. Um. You said earlier you liken this process to a thirsty person being given something to drink, and the thirst in this, in these stories that you tell in your film, is is grief. These people have lost uh, loved ones, often very recently, and and in some cases very suddenly, and they are just, oh my God, the sorrow in this film is is just heartbreaking. Um, you have several stories, uh, very intimate stories of people. Uh, one is. Um, I think Chicago police officer, Ronald Holt. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to play a clip of him describing what happened to him. It was May 10th, 07. Uh, my son, Blair, he left school after his last class, traveling on a public bus in Chicago, Illinois. And this gang member discovered that it was a rival gang member on the bus that he was looking to shoot. And uh, actually, Blair shielded a young lady a classmate and friend from uh, being fatally wounded, but the one bullet from a 40 caliber handgun did a lot of damage in his main organs, um, so he, he didn't su- he didn't survive. As far as the spirit world, uh, I never bought into anything like that, but. I think uh, here at Lilydale, maybe God allows for spirits to make a connection. I want to tell them I'm sorry that that I wasn't there to protect them. I think that's the thing that gets me. That I just wasn't there to protect them, and I should have been. That was a clip from the film No One Dies in Lilydale, directed by my guest Stephen Cantor. It's the story of a town in upstate New York, Lilydale, uh, that is inhabited by um, psychic mediums. It's a spiritual community, and um, it tells the story of people who've lost relatives and loved ones going to this town, getting in touch with their dead relatives. Um, Stephen, first of all, you got access to these stories. People allowed you into these readings. Um, they told you they're very personal and very raw you know, details of, of, of their life while they were, you know, very vulnerable state, uh, and uh, it's clear to me that that they were participating in this film in a essential way. There are scenes, for instance, where you're filming from a distance, and they've they've obviously got wireless mics on them, so you can hear their conversations. Um, how did you get people to uh, join this effort the way you did? I, mean, I think I've never had a, I've never had any major grief in my life, but from what I understand, the people that do have it, they you know, there's a enormous range of ways to deal with it. Some of them are become extremely withdrawn and private, and some people just feel like they want to 
share their grief with others and try and become a voice for others and share the story of the person who passed away with others. And so we just basically searched for people that would that were open to sharing the stories. Mm-hmm. So Ron, Ron, you know, felt this was an opportunity to immortalize his son Blair. Similarly, Susan, um, what was Susan's son's name again? Susan's son was Scotty. Right. So similarly, Susan thought that she could immortalize Scotty, and Rebecca had soon-to-be fiance. Doug. Yeah. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, you just named uh, two other participants of the film, Susan Heinrichs and uh, Rebecca Fabricius, both of whom came to Lilydale. And and, and I want to talk a bit about them as well, because each of these stories is is different. Um, Ron um, Holt, who we just heard talking about his son, Blair, came pretty open-minded. He said he had no background in this spiritualism stuff, but but he was quite open to receiving the the word of these mediums and in fact he had several readings and and they fall into that category I think you you were just talking about of you know pretty high hit rate now here's an example this is uh, Ron getting a reading from a medium named John White when I'm sensing around you I'm I'm sensing a lady here standing beside you um, she seems she has a Bible she has a Bible in her hand and um, I get a feeling I see I see you as a little as a little boy I see her holding you in her in, in her arms, I feel like she's, she's loving you. She's telling you how great you are. Um, I'm also getting a feeling of a child, a vibration that feels like your son. Now, this may sound silly to you, but, you know, we can go to music classes in the spirit world. We can continue doing things there. Yes. Okay? The image I got of him in the spirit world is like he was standing up conducting, so other people basically doing his music. You're amazing because... There are people, some of my son's friends, who I uh, have already chosen to perform his music. Okay. I have to ask you a question now. There's a man standing behind you in a military uniform. Who is oh that? Oh, my God. It's my family. Dad. Family, yeah. He died in, um, he's 32 years old. He, he died uh, in... May also of 1966. Okay. I'm seeing a dove in your hands for some reason. A dove. Oh, my God. I ordered two sets of business cards. Okay. Of my son's foundation. One set of business cards has a dove on it. Beautiful. Well, I and saw that image. See, when we get things, sometimes we see things, uh-huh. sometimes we hear, smell, taste. Uh-huh. Your father was a vision. Your son with me is all feelings. Yeah. Okay, I just got a very strong feeling that you really have been blessed by some very, some very powerful people in the spirit. Mm. You really have been. Mm. Uh, we just heard Ronald Holt getting a reading from this Reverend John White, one of the mediums there in Lilydale, and uh, we can hear, um, by the way, rain falling. They're sitting on a porch, and um, it seems to me that uh, John White is uh, hitting a lot of nails on the head there. Mm-hmm. So um, you're sitting there filming this. I mean, how are you feeling about all of this while you watched it take place? Um, I mean, actually, the, the entire time we were filming, I sort of had this little voice in, in my head saying, you know, stay, remove, just observe, let them tell their own story. I thought it was actually really somewhat lucky that we had, of the three people that we really chose to be our primary stories, we had one person kind of buying into it, Right from the beginning, every word he was like really 
buying into the whole experience of Lilydale and everything that was wrong. And then we had one woman, Rebecca, who was a little more questioning, a little more had to be convinced that there was some truth to it. And one woman, Susan, who was from the get-go very, very skeptical and didn't really want to experience what Lilydale had to offer. So we kind of had these three diverse experiences of what was going on in Lilydale. Um, but they were definitely, I mean, they, you know, actually, there's one medium, Greg Keen, who gave a reading to Rebecca where she left and said to medium, he's, he's the one who, at one point, he said she was pregnant and had a miscarriage, that her deceased um, fiance was thanking her for that gift. And she left saying it was way off the mark. She didn't believe anything he said. But during that reading, was the, it was the most moving of any of the readings I'd said. I thought he was incredibly specific with what he told her, and she was crying, and I was sitting on the couch holding the camera crying. It was very touching. I was completely shocked that she left saying it wasn't accurate. Mm. Well, uh, this is um, Rebecca Fabricius, who had come uh, to Lilydale after uh, losing her, as you say, soon-to-be fiancé, Doug, uh, in kind of a mysterious death. He, w- he, w- he was healthy, he was young, mm-hmm. and... Um, I guess he worked on a farm and, and went out one day and, and, and was found dead. Um, and, and no one knows, yeah. no one knows the cause. And she was hurting bad, just like, uh, some of these other people in the film. Um, she had this reading from a medium named Greg Keen, as you say, and, um, you say he got some things right. I noticed that he said that there was a child. You guys were, you had a child or something like that. And she shook her head and he immediately changed it to miscarriage. Which you know, a skeptic could say he was pretty fast on his feet there. You know, he 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 shifted it to a more plausible scenario since he could see that she didn't have a child. So she was really unpersuaded by him. Um, yeah, a lot of them are very quick on their feet. If you say no, you know, they've they've got an answer for everything. They never say, "Oh, hmm, I must be wrong." You know, they, they have an answer for everything. <laughs> and he definitely had an answer for everything. But he also, in that reading, I remember he said. Here's the way he used to take your hand at night, and he reached across and held her hand in a very strange way, and he used to rub your fingers like this, and she was saying yes, and she was crying, and, ah. and he was just getting more and more deep into very specific little personal things, and I was like, I couldn't believe how amazing and specific it was and how moved she was and how she was just tears streaming down her eyes, and I thought, God, this is going to be like... The climax of the movie is how amazingly accurate this reading is, and then she left and said, "I, you know, she didn't think it was good. She didn't think it was accurate." I was, I was shocked by that. Um, now, now the the real um, skeptic in the film, though, uh, and she plays a very important role, is Susan Heinrichs, who describes herself as evangelical, born again Christian, uh, and some of her skepticism is because spiritualism, this belief that these mediums hold, um, is regarded in the Christian church, at least by fundamentalists, as pagan or sorcery or or non-Christian in some sense. And in fact, you, you have a scene of some fundamentalists demonstrating outside the gates of Lilydale, uh, saying this is a place of wickedness. Um, one of them has a placard that I didn't quite understand. It said, Harry Potter will damn the souls of your children. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Susan's a little more open-minded, and she goes there. She has lost uh, her her son, who got cancer at eighteen, and uh, she. Um, I, I think she's a very interesting character to have in the film because she she is a tough-minded person. She's she has a reading from again the same medium we talked about a minute ago, Greg Keane, and uh, she really grills him. Um, she puts him on the spot, and it's kind of tense. And she says, well, you know, you're leading me, you're pushing me. Um, 
she says all the things that I think uh, a scientist or a, a classic debunker would say. Um, yeah. I think she flew across the country expecting it to be open to it, and when she got there, she realized it was just not what she was looking for. Um, it, it's interesting that these spiritualists, they're the kind of people that, that surely uh, you know, get their share of criticism from scientific rationalists, but also from uh, a lot of fundamentalist Christians. They get it from both sides. Criticism-wise? Yeah, yeah. I, th I, I imagine, you know, of course they get a lot of criticism from people who, who think it's all mumbo-jumbo and malarkey. People, uh, Not only that, they, they get it a lot from people who think spirits, that there is a spiritual realm and spirits should be left alone and not interfered with and not contacted. Ah, interesting. So that's what I think that, I actually think the evangelical Christians do believe that there's a, a spiritual realm, but just that the Bible says you're not supposed to communicate with them in that way. Mm, right, right. Uh, yeah, the Bible has injunctions against things like divination, uh, yeah. you know, and sorcery and things like that. And, and so right. for fundamentalists, this is this is a kind mm. of um, blasphemy or something. Uh, right. but, it, but it's interesting, this little community of spiritualists, uh, you know, uh, you'd think they might be under siege, but they actually seem, it seems like a happy little community. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> You know, when, when someone does come, like Susan, who I think she was sort of at a crossroads in life of having these very strong um, fundamentalist Christian beliefs and at the same time being so aggrieved over the loss of her son that she was just looking for, she was just open to anything. That I don't think her religion was providing the answers that could help her move on. Not that she even really wanted to move on, I think. I don't think she was ready to move on. I don't know if you ever do move on from the death of a child. So, mm. um, um, I should say that um, this film is not really coming from a position of attempting to prove or disprove, um, discredit or or credit the claims of these mediums. It seems like you're doing something very different here. Uh, you know, I think the documentary genre in general is very appealing to people with very strong opinions. You know, we shouldn't kill dolphins or we shouldn't be digging for oil and pristine farmlands. Or you know, people have very strong political beliefs who go into documentaries. And I'm not coming at it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love those types of films, but I come at it from much more of a let's find interesting people. And I think I come at it from more of a storytelling standpoint. Let's find interesting people and sort of follow them through an experience and let them tell their own story. So that's what I tried to do with Lily Dale's not necessarily put my own opinions of what Lilydale is all about into the film, but let the people whose stories we're following, let them experience Lilydale and let the viewer experience Lilydale through their eyes. Leaving aside the whole question of the validity of, you know, spiritualism and all the mysticism and all of that, what seems to happen uh, in Lilydale, judging from the stories in your film, is that people come... Uh, in, in a deep state of grief, and at least some of them come away feeling much, much better. Um, uh, in your film, Ron Holt definitely seems to, to get some comfort from the experience, a lot of comfort from the experience. Uh, I think Rebecca Fabricius also. Uh, even Susan Heinrichs, who doubts the whole thing, credits uh, the experience with having connected her with other grieving people and, and that making a difference in her life. So you could think of it as a form of grief counseling, and maybe an, maybe an effective one for a lot of people. Completely. It's very therapeutic. A lot of the things they say are very rooted in psychotherapy. Uh, did, did it change your feelings about death at all? 
I think that the thing that influenced me the most is that I think it's an incredibly peaceful way to organize your life. I think if you can get around to believing it, and I'm not entirely convinced that it's uh, that there's truth to it, but I'm certainly not entirely convinced that there's not. So I'm still kind of on the fence. I think there's definitely some kernels of truth, and I think if it is, actually, if it is, or if you can get yourself to believe that it is, it's a very um, comforting, peaceful way to order your life, to just feel like you're in the spiritual realm. You come down to the earth realm and have some experiences here, and then you go right back up there, and all that really, you know, your spirit just lives on and on, and this energy, that's your essence, never dies. That's a really beautiful way to organize your life. Mm. Well, well, thanks for uh, talking to me today, Steve. Thanks for your time. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. We just heard from the filmmaker Stephen Cantor, whose new documentary, No One Dies in Lilydale, is the subject of our show today. It's a portrait of the town of Lilydale, New York, which is home to dozens of psychic mediums who believe they can communicate with the spirits of the dead. Next, we'll talk to one of those mediums, one who Stephen Cantor mentioned earlier, Anne Gaiman. Here's a segment from the film where Anne gives a reading to Ron Holt, a Chicago policeman grieving over the loss of his son, Blair. You know, I see um, a shooting. Something happened here that sort of stunned him. He was shot and killed. The bus in Chicago on the way home from school, Blair shielded a person. Okay, just a moment. Mm. He tells me to tell you it wasn't painful. It feels like it was very quick. And he wants you to know he did not suffer. Thank you. Um, Would you understand why he would talk about the funeral service and those... Okay. Those little items that were placed beside him? What does he mean by that? The little items that were placed beside him. Wow. Would you understand? No, completely, because okay. in the end there was a, um, there was a, there's a ritual ah. that, going back to the days of even the Egyptians and what have you, when they would place uh, trinkets and things yeah. in the coffin or tomb, uh, his mom placed a lot of things in there. Yeah. I placed the cross with my badge number on a gold police star. For you to and mention that, it looks that like there's a wow. little ring, a little tiny, like a baby's ring. Wow. And he was so pleased with that. Wow. And he tells me that he wants to tell his mother to release any feeling that she has about blaming herself for anything. And he's saying this to both of you, okay? Mm. Oh, I hope you know how much he loves you and how much he appreciated you always being there for him. That meant so much to him. We try. And now he wants to give you a gift. And so he's going to be communicating with you so beautifully. So I want to encourage you, Ronald, to, uh, to have times of meditation and prayer where you can walk between the two worlds and be with him as he's with you.
I'm Ann Gaiman, um, and right now in Lilydale, New York, uh, a spiritualist community that started way back in the 1800s and uh, exists today uh, as a spiritualist community. And you are a registered medium. I'm registered here in Lilydale. Uh, I'm also a certified medium uh, and a commissioned healer and an ordained minister with the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. How do you become a registered medium in Lilydale? Well, in Lilydale, you have to be a member for a certain length of time uh, of of the community, and you have to serve for a period of time in the church and the outdoor services. And once you do that, then you are, uh, you show your credentials to the board of directors, and they uh, send several people for readings uh, to evaluate your work. So, but I did that so long ago, I don't remember what all I did, <laughs> because they change the rules from time to time. But uh, primarily, it is uh, finding uh, uh, the validation of your of your talent of your ability. So you have to pass a test, you're saying? Yes, uh-huh. you have to pass a test, yes. Uh-huh. And, and is it based on sort of the accuracy of, of, your, of the things you uh, communicate? Well, I think it's, uh, it's mostly the accuracy, but I believe also your presentation, you know, how you present what you, what you receive, and, uh, so, and your professionalism. And you said it was a long time ago. Um, when did you become a medium? Well, um, I started public work at age 15, and so that's many years ago, and I've been uh, a professional medium all of my life, and it's really the only work I've done past age about 20 or 21. Was that considered a, a strange or crazy choice by the people you knew at the time? Well, I think a lot of people didn't understand it. I never quite accept the word crazy or weird and spooky and some of the words that are used to describe this. I've just always discounted that because uh, to me it's always been very valid and very meaningful. And I just uh, forgave people for what I considered to be their ignorance. But to answer your question, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when um, a client comes to you and you sit down with them to give a reading, what exactly do you do? Uh, well, as I sit with them, I I always start with a prayerful thought because I feel that what we do is very spiritual, and so I like to bring the the person into that level of spirituality or where they feel centered with um, with God, with spirit, or whatever that is to them. You see, and once we feel that attunement, uh, then uh, to prayerfully invite the departed loved ones, the guides and teachers from the other side of life. And then I just began to talk and, and tell them what I see and feel and sense and hear. Um, and, and, and what are you sort of feeling and sensing when you do these readings? What's going through your, your well, mind? you'll find that every medium works very differently. For me, uh, it's, it's really based on love, and uh, there has to be a feeling of love, um, I think to stimulate that that flow of uh, inspiration, the flow of clairvoyance and clairaudience. So uh, when I start a reading, uh, usually I I begin to um, well, it'll be a series of visions. Uh, it will be 
uh, actually being able to see the presence of departed loved ones and to be able to describe them, perhaps give a name and uh, maybe some old memories that only the uh, the sitter and the person in spirit would know, uh, maybe talking about how they crossed over, possibly. So there are many things that sort of validate that connection. Uh, again, as I receive, I, uh, Robert, I don't stop to think how I'm receiving. So when you ask that question, I don't know. I just know that mm. I see them, I hear their voices, you see, and I feel the presence. Mm. And when you're when you're giving readings, um, do you ever um, do you ever strike out? I mean, do you ever just totally miss and and have a client say, "Nope, that's not it." Mm, no, I, I don't know when that's ever happened. I I don't find it. I can only think of a couple of times in all the years I've done this where uh, I haven't really felt a connection with the person. I noticed in the, in the film, uh, "No One Dies in Lilydale," uh -huh. um, readings by you and other mediums, they they always you know, sent people away with positive messages. Um, yes. The, the messages are always from these spirits saying, um, you know, I love you, I care about mm -hmm. you, I'm here, I'm okay, go on with your life. Um, do you, mm -hmm. but, but does the opposite ever happen? Do you ever, uh, you know, pick up something that's quite negative and tell people, you know, uh, they didn't like you, uh, in fact, you were the death of them, um, mm -hmm. you know, that kind I of thing? I don't think I've ever heard anything like that from spirit. I think that spirit always works uh, with uh, out of love and a desire to bring a sense of upliftment and peace and joy to the individual. Uh, what I do find, however, uh, very often there will be entities who will uh, want to apologize for something they may have done wrong or how they've hurt someone, you see, and so they want to establish a better relationship. For example, I talked with a woman just the other day whose father was very abusive and uh, was alcoholic, and he just recently passed away. And the first thing he said uh, was that, well, he talked about his addiction and was very apologetic for the way he had treated the entire family and uh, said that if he could live his life again, he would handle it all very differently. And he was very apologetic and uh, left this woman with a, a very loving, caring attitude, I think, of forgiveness and, and love for her father. Mm. So, see, there, there's always healing. This can be very healing for individuals. There's, um, I don't think I've ever come in contact with a totally negative spirit, quite frankly. Mm. Um you you say in the film that uh, there is no death in the sense that most people think of it being right. the final end that that it's a kind, I think you use the the phrase uh, it's just a graduation uh yes uh at the time you know in our culture we have such a negative feeling and such darkness surrounding death uh because uh, and people fear it uh but it's a natural normal process robert that we're all going to face someday one way or another and the process of death is, is, it's not death, it's, that's an illusion. Uh, we simply leave the physical body and we gravitate to a level of consciousness that all of our earth experiences have, has prepared us for. And we're usually immediately reunited with loved ones in the other world. And uh, then we have the opportunity for continuous growth. You see, 
And I think the sorrow and the grief often is within the person who's left behind. That's the, uh, and it's, uh, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings if they're grieving, but it's sort of an ego-based thing because they're concerned with their own feelings usually because a person who's crossed over has gone on and uh, found a sense of growth and upliftment and hopefully move to the light and in in the presence of more evolved souls and um, and connecting more with that great infinite intelligence of the universe of which we're all part. Um, when someone close to you dies, how do mm-hmm. you feel? Oh, uh, well, I've lost brothers and sisters and uh, my mother and dad have passed on and uh, I feel that... Mm, you know, I, I certainly miss their physical presence. Uh, I I feel that they lived a long, full life, and they were ready to go. And so I, I think the most difficult person for me to, uh, to release was probably uh, my mother-in-law from my first marriage, uh, Margaret. She was always my dearest friend, and even... Um, uh, after my first husband went out of my life, she was my dearest friend, and I took care of her the last five years of her life, and I just loved her. And she had so many unresolved things that it was very, uh, if she had been more at peace within herself, it would have been easier probably for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was probably the hardest death. Did, did, did you cry? Oh, I did, and I still cry once in a while for her. Um, so your belief that, that there really is no death um, doesn't keep you from, from grieving also? Oh, no, because we still have the same feeling that anyone else would have. Um, I think that, um, so I, I pro- again, I probably grieved more for her than anyone. For my own mother, I certainly cried when she passed over, and I cried when my, my uh, two brothers and a sister have crossed over, and my father, uh, but... It was very easy for me to release that because I knew it was their time, and they were uh, they were on their pathway. Hmm. You see, mm-hmm. so hmm. uh, and and they were fine and prepared to go. Well, yeah. Anne, on that note, I just want to thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome, and it's a joy being with you. And um, Again, we just so appreciated Stephen and his wonderful documentary, and I know all of Lilydale is grateful to him. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. That was Ann Gaiman, one of 40 registered mediums in Lilydale, New York. It's a spiritualist community portrayed in the new documentary film, No One Dies in Lilydale. It's by the director Stephen Cantor, and it's now running on HBO. The film tells the story of several people who travel to Lilydale, mourning the loss of loved ones and seeking peace of mind. One of those visitors is Rebecca Fabricius, and that's the correct pronunciation of her name. I said it wrong earlier when talking to Stephen Cantor. She went to Lilydale after the sudden death of her fiancé-to-be, Doug. He was a horse trainer who died while working, though the cause of his death isn't exactly clear. We had plans for supper. I, I called him when I got to town, and he just wanted to finish something up on the farm. And he never uh, came, never showed up that night. 
some of his friends uh, rode out the next day and found him. They had seen his horse, actually, um, and so went and noticed that the horse wasn't moving, so they went out thinking that the horse was injured and ended up uh, finding him laying there. If he had to die for whatever reason, I'm really grateful that he was where he would want to be and doing what he wanted to be doing. Mm. I mean, it just makes sense to me that he was with horses when he died. Mm. Now, the first time we see you in the film, uh, I think you're at, at a gathering uh, in this, this clearing in L- Lilydale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Inspiration a, Stump. Inspiration Stump. There's a tree stump there that's a sort of um, sacred spot for the spiritualists in Lilydale. And I'd just like to play a little clip from the film. Uh, this is a medium talking to the audience, and, and you're in the audience. Could I speak to the lady in the blue blouse? Hi, yes. how are you? Okay. What's your name? Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. I have a lady in spirit who's not talking about who she is. She says it's not important who she is as much as that you understand that there are periods in your life where you are being wrapped with gentle arms. And she says, we're the people who come and wrap people in gentle arms. Do you understand that? She is talking about how you have been asking for information or you've been asking why. And as you've been asking why, you're finding nothing but the most deafening silence. (laughs) She is coming to you and bringing you, for some reason, a bouquet of daisies. And she said, you have to remember, when you pull the petals out, the final petal will always be, he loves me. All right? So um, this medium sees you in the audience and, and says that, she senses a spirit um, who, who's plucking petals from a daisy, uh, and the last petal is, he loves me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're crying at that point. Um, as I am now. As you are now. Um, so what was your feeling when, when, when she said that? So when this particular medium had, was coming up, she was towards the end of, of the lineup, and as she walked up, she said, I feel like singing Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And I thought to myself, oh, this time it's going to work. When Doug didn't show up or when I thought he was just late that night, um, I called him and (laughs) the message that I left uh, on his cell phone was, uh, I just made up words to that message, won't you be my neighbor, or to that tune. So when she said that, I just had this feeling like as much as I was not believing the process at the time, I thought, okay, here it's coming. That helped me kind of get ready for it. So... When she started her her message, she said, I'm hearing from a woman. (laughs) I kind of just, no, I don't care about any women, and I just wanted to hear from him. And the reading that I had had that morning, I didn't feel like it was him, even though purportedly was from him. And so I was kind of doubly deflated then. And then when she said that, it it just kind of all clicked for me, and that would be just how he let me know that it was him. Uh He was very much... um, a guy from nature, and he would prove it. He wouldn't just say it. He would, he would prove it, or it would be there in his actions. So um, that that was very significant. The other significance, which uh, the the two women who appear in the film with me are both widows as well. They belong to the Young Widows Group, and the logo on the business card is actually a daisy. Mm. So when when she said that, it all just kind of came together for me. She didn't know anything about your background. She didn't know that you had lost your 
fiance to be. Not at all. So, so that at that moment, you you thought, wow, there's something to this. Uh, yeah, that's when, you know, I went into the process. Not, I I had a lot of doubts going into the process and wasn't sure if I would even really go and didn't have any experience with it myself. And a good friend said to me, "This might be just sugar water. This might be a placebo, but." You've been hurting long enough, and if it makes you feel better, I think you should do it. So I kind of went in there with the thought that maybe this will make me feel better. Maybe this will uh, soothe the grief and the pain and the agony. And and I've said often that I could feel him around me, but I just couldn't connect to him. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of where I went, oh, now we're, you know, on the same wavelength. So, yeah, that was one of the points where I started to get better. So, so you weren't into mediums and spiritualism and psychic phenomena before you went? No. Uh, I didn't know a lot about it. Um, but, yeah, I didn't certainly didn't think that that would be me. Mm. <laughs> Is it you at this point? Or? Uh, to a sense. So, you know, I don't need it right now. I don't need that, that kind of message. I feel, you know, good with, with, with where I am. Um, but it's certainly, if if I did or if there was a loss or if I was searching for some kind of guidance, I, I probably would again. For you, the, the trip there, though, um, and meeting these mediums was sort of a turning point for you? It was one of them. Um, it was, for me, um, really powerful that, that people could not only acknowledge his existence and his role to me, um, but our relationship. The the presence of it and the ongoingness of it, um, that I didn't stop loving him and he didn't stop loving me just because he died. Mm. Um, it's one thing for people who know me to, to say that, but it's another thing for people who don't know me to say, oh, <laughs> I can see that. So so friends you know, and, and loved ones comforting you that way isn't as effective as meeting these strangers in this special place and he- hearing it from them? It wasn't for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that was that was a, a significant difference in in working with the medium. Huh. You uh, mentioned a moment ago that a friend had said, "Well, what if it is a placebo? If it makes you feel better, that's what counts." Mm-hmm. Um, the film sort of poses that question. I mean, it doesn't come down on one side or the other saying these phenomena are real or they're fake. Um, it seems to say, "Well, people um, do take consolation from this, and, and that's something." That's actually one of the things that I think had impacted my first reading is that I was expecting, in a sense, I was expecting him to make me feel better. And he can only do, or any medium or any healer can really only do what is sent through them. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of up to what you, I think, it's sort of up to what you take from it. And I've also come to realize that in, in my readings on it, that it's not necessarily in the sequence of time as we know it. So some things, and that's certainly been true in my life, you know, like something will happen, and I'll think it already has happened, or I'll think I remembered it, but it's just happening now, you know. Things. Um, so I, I do think that um, there's, there's something to making some of those connections beyond uh, what's tangible or physical or, or in your awareness. What, what was it like for you to watch yourself in this film? going through this process. What struck me most watching it a year later is how much 
I looked at that woman and the emotional pain that she's in, and I thought, oh, wow, I'm really in a different place now. There is life, you know, beyond that event. I still think that will probably be the event that most impacts my life. Um, But you have to come to terms with the fact that he is gone and I am still here, and, and mostly that he wouldn't want me to be sad. Mm. Well, Rebecca, thanks a lot for this time. And finally today, we'll talk to another participant in the documentary film, No One Dies in Lilydale. Susan Heinrichs went to Lilydale after the death of her son, Scotty, who contracted cancer at 18 and died three years later. Susan's an evangelical Christian, and she's the most skeptical of the people shown in the movie. Here she is in the film expressing her misgivings think that that's what I'm really sensing more than anything here is it's just this this incredible openness that everybody that's here visiting and that here that lives here feels that that's the key to true fulfillment is just remaining constantly open it draws me to like want to buy into it just because I see so many people that seem to really to want to believe it but it reminds me a lot being from Southern California going down to Disneyland and knowing that everybody wants to buy into that fantasy, too, and it's sort of like a Disneyland for your spirit, you know? You're coming here and you want to be spiritually open. just seems like everybody wants to make it real. So you said, you know, you're obviously uh, not sold on this, this business of spiritualism and mediums talking to, to the dead. Uh, you say it's a bit like Disneyland. Um, and you go on to uh, question and even sort of confront one of the mediums there. There's a scene in the movie with you talking to this man, and uh, you're clearly not uh, persuaded by his approach. You know, he, he, he claims to have sort of sensed the story of your son, but, but you, you seem, um, again, very, very skeptical. Right, and it's not that I made the comment regarding Disneyland to be disrespectful of what these people that are living there and who believe in spiritualism do believe because I feel very strongly that they have as much right as I do to have that, uh, to hold the views that they do. I mean, if they don't have that right in in this country that I'm living in, then maybe I won't have my right to hold my Christian views. So I I look at it from that perspective. But there is a scene in the movie where you sit down with this um, medium. Yeah, that's correct. I sit down with him, and you know, the way that came about was this gentleman just approached me, literally just approached me and, and, you know, reached out to me and said, let's sit down and talk. And I think he was not anticipating that I was going to sit down and, you know, have my Bible there. And, and maybe some people look at it as a, you know, a challenge or a debate. For me, it was simply, you know, I came there with my, my faith, my belief. I wasn't going to just say, oh, let me just put that away entirely. So it was a matter of, you know, I'm going to sit down here and open up my Bible and, and talk with you from the perspective of a Christian. And you talk with me from a perspective of a spiritualist, a medium. And that's how we encountered one another. It seems like it was a little bit tense, um, at least judging from from the film. Um, He attempted to give you a reading, tell you some things about your son, um, some of which weren't exactly correct, though he he seems to have uh, intuited that that your son, you know, had something wrong, he said, in in the neck or head area, and that is where the cancer first appeared on your son's neck. But then he he gets something very wrong about the process, right? Uh, so, So what did you take away from that? that encounter with this this medium? Well, what I took away from it was simply that, yes, he did, in fact, make mention of the head and neck area. And 
you know, at that point in time, yes, that definitely, you know, piqued my interest and made me think, wow, that's interesting that he would say that. Um, of course, I didn't know if possibly he had some way of having spoken with someone that might have known that information about me prior to sitting down and talking with me. But then from there to uh, what he says about, you know, my son, you know, that you weren't, I think the way he put it was to the effect that, you know, it kind of suddenly happened or, you know, kind of suddenly left the body, that type of thing. And that's what really raised my ire because, you know, having gone through two years and ten months of literal living hell, I mean, it was a horrific nightmare. Uh, it was just, I mean, there were so many times where even my son would say to me, you know, uh, there's a loving God that I believe in, but the way that I'm just, you know, made to just go through this and just hang on through this suffering where there's no living, there's no dying, it's kind of like a place in between the two, uh, is really a challenge to my faith. I mean, he shared that with me openly many times, and we talked about what it means to uh, believe in a loving God and yet, you know, going through such suffering. So that's what really uh, caused me to respond as, you know, strongly or adamantly as I did, because for me it was like, no, I'm sorry. You have to really question whether you're getting in contact with my son if you're telling me these things, because they're not lining up. Mm-hmm. So by the end of your experience there, had you changed your mind? I mean, what exactly happened over that time for you? Well, for me, I didn't change my mind in terms of what I believe about, you know, mediums or uh, what the Bible calls divination. Uh, Some people could use the term sorcery. Uh, Call it what you will. Basically, it's a practice that doesn't really keep itself within the lines of what would be a biblical approach. So that was my issue with it. I come away feeling that there was some reason that that opportunity presented itself to me in my life. It certainly came at a moment in my life where I I don't even know that I would even be here today without that opportunity. So when you say you're not sure you'd even be here without having gone through that experience, what do you mean? Well, I think that I was at a point uh, eight months after my son was gone where I really didn't know how I was going to go forward in my life. I really, I struggled with how do I get up in the morning and feel that there's still a purpose for me in this world? How do I, um, you know, do something that shows that there's a legacy that my son was even here? So going there really, I think, opened my eyes to that, not because I sat down with a medium but really because I connected with Ronald Holt, a father that's also at that same spot in life. You're saying your connection with Mr. Holt, um, who found Lily Dale to be the, the, you know, the, right, the right solution for him, um, your connection meant a lot to you, you're saying? I'm saying absolutely that connection that we made from one you know, living, breathing person in the physical body sitting across from the other, sharing the pictures that you see in the film of my son and of his son. We exchanged uh, pictures, and to this very day, I I have on my backpack that you see in the film, there's the pin, uh, the button that has his son's picture on it. It's right next to the button of my son, and every time I look at it, I mean, just tears just come into my eyes because I realize that that's where we made that, the deepest level of human connection that you can make. So so for you, it was really about, in a way, community and connecting with people, not so much the uh, the spiritualism side uh, of Lilydale. Yeah, and I think that's really important to think about, because I think that a lot of people do go to a place like Lilydale because they're looking to connect with, you know, the people that they love, and they're finding trying to find answers that they don't have presently. And yet I think that we need to turn to each other, and we need to do a better job as a community of people in the physical and the physical plane uh, of helping each other to 
find a way, uh, find a place that we can find some peace and comfort and help from each other and understanding. You know, you know, it's interesting that in the film you play the role of the skeptic. You're the, the one person uh, who goes there who really challenges the mediums. And uh, I think maybe some people watching might find it particularly interesting that, that you're an evangelical um, born-again Christian. They might think, well, you're a person of faith. You made that leap of faith. So it's surprising to see you in the role of a person who's saying, show me the evidence. Um, your story doesn't add up. This is not logical. I don't just take what I believe on just blind faith. I've had an experience in my life that helps to, to continue that faith to live on. And for me, it's not a magical thing. Uh, it's something that is very real, very tangible. And I don't believe that that faith is, is something that uh, you can convince another person of. I think it has to be a very personal experience that you have. Have you had to ever defend your faith against people who are skeptical about it in the same way that, say, some of the people in Lilydale, you know, are put on the spot sometimes about, about their beliefs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, having people uh, confront me about my faith, I really do um, consider myself sort of an armchair apologist and not to apologize for my faith, but for the true meaning of it, to be able to just defend that faith, that it's not just a blind faith that's nonsensical. Did it feel then a little bit odd to be in, in the other um, on the other side with regard to the, the people in Lilydale? Oh, absolutely. It was really an interesting experience because I really didn't go there, you know, with that intent. I wanted to go there and just be very honest and frank and open and, 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 and have an interaction and see what could happen. And it was an amazing experience, and not really for the reasons that I think a lot of people, you know, go to Lilydale for. They're going for answers to, you know, why someone uh, has done what they've done while they were alive or what's going to happen in their future or just being able to, to know that things are okay with that person that's died. That was not the type of questions I came with. I came with the questions of where do I go from here in my own heart, in my own life that I know that I can feel comfortable with, with the faith that I have. And how are you doing nowadays? Well, I think that as a bereaved parent, I think that that's who you become. I'm living in this life for as long as I believe God gives me breath to live here, and I feel like there's a renewed sense of purpose and understanding that there is a legacy for my son that doesn't necessarily involve grandchildren for me and, uh, you know, his career and the things that maybe he could have done in this world. I know that I can live out that legacy through carrying on uh, the vision of what he was about, which is, you know, to love others and to, you know, promote what that love was really about, reaching out, sharing, connecting, and especially what do we do with grief? What do we do from here once we know that it's, we're not doing a very good job of it? Even in the, in the, you know, in the faith community, there's oftentimes just, you know, trust the Lord, you know, it's, you know, it's all God's plan and, and a lot of very, uh, easy, pat answers, uh, that really sometimes ring very hollow because you're just suffering. And it's, at least for me, I could speak to that as simply being, it's a journey. It's who I've become. I'm a bereaved parent. I'm not going to stop being a bereaved parent to the day that I die. You, you and I exchanged email before we started this interview, and you signed your email to me, uh, Forever Scotty's Mom. Right. You know, I've just kind of taken, since Scotty's been gone, to just put after my name in parentheses, I always just put forever Scotty's mommy. Um, one of the things that my son would say to people, um, 
even though from 18 to 21 he was just dealing with just a horrendous form of cancer that was so debilitating and deteriorating to him, but he never never missed the opportunity to tell people. He'd say, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a mommy's boy. And it would just, my heart would just break whenever I would hear that because I knew that it was indicative of the fact that we shared such an, a tremendous love. That's the grief that I carried with me, and that's the grief I'll carry to my grave is just uh, what it's like to have that communication broken off. And I do say that when I'm speaking with Ron in the film about, you know, what was it for and what was it about, uh, even as a Christian, looking at it from the perspective, that tremendous contact, communication, that sense of bond that we had for it to just be gone. It's a, it's, it's a very difficult thing to wrap your mind around. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, signing off until next week. And this show does have an afterlife. It's on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>